This episode of the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Aftershocks. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm your host, Ali Feller, and I am so excited about today's episode. Today, I'm talking with Wesley Little. Wesley is a couples therapist, and so we unpack a lot throughout this conversation. First, Wesley shares how she became a therapist, which involved a detour through law school before finding her true passion. Then she talks about the schooling and education required to become a counselor or therapist before going on and answering all of my burning therapy-related questions. Then she answers your questions. So many people wrote in with questions for Wesley, and I hope you find her answers helpful. I also hope this episode helps clear up any misconceptions, concerns, or hesitations you may have if you've never tried therapy or you think it's not for you. Without further ado, Wesley Little. Wesley, welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I am super excited to have you here today. I am so excited to be here, Allie. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So on the Alley on the Run show, we start off with what I call a warm-up because in theory, that's how we start our runs, right? So Mm -hmm. tell everyone who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So my name is Wesley Little. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I specialize in couples therapy. Um, Right now, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I am actually from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I know you just took a trip out there. I did, and that, like, my heart just bursts a little bit. I'm so jealous. (laughs) One of my friends just moved out to San Francisco, too, and she keeps posting photos that are like, I'm so lucky to live here, and I'm like, you're so lucky I'm going to move in with you. Just wait. Yeah, it's awesome. So what brought you to Charlotte? So I've lived in a few different states, and we actually moved for my husband's work. And so um, hopefully we'll be in Charlotte for a little while, but we're never in any place for too, too long. And what does he do? He works in human resources, which you would not think moves you around a lot, but it does. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to get into all the personal stuff. But first, I am so super fascinated by your career. So what is the correct, I know you just said your title, but what is like the easiest way to refer to you? Is it couples therapist? Is it therapist? Is it counselor? What's the right terminology there? Yeah, I, I like couples therapist. Um, for a long time, I just said therapist and every person I was talking to thought I meant physical therapist. So couples oh. therapist gives like a nice clarity up front. You should have just tried to fix all their physical issues too. Like, And while I'm making stuff up on your body, let's talk about what else is going on. How's that knee doing? (laughs) And how do you feel about it? All right. So so tell me a little bit. I, I, I went through a phase when I was younger where I wanted to be a counselor in an elementary school. I have no idea why. And I never pursued it for some reason. But I want to know, how did you get into your career? Was this something you always saw yourself doing, helping people and, and talking about things? No, I actually really didn't know the world of therapy at all. Um, I didn't grow up in a household where therapy would be normal. Like I didn't, I was not exposed to it at all. And so, you know, I went through college. I never did any psychology or anything like that. Um, And I was in my mid 20s and I was actually in law school um, at like a really crappy law school. So like, don't be impressed by it at all. I was just like barely scraping by like a crappy law school and my parents divorced. And so for the first time I started seeing a therapist and I came out of that first session and I was like, this is amazing. Like everyone should do therapy. Therapy is incredible. Um, and so it wasn't until a while later that I thought, you know, I think if I could do anything, this is what I would want to do. And then I started my journey from there. So I was really like late 20s. uh, I'm 35 now. And I was late 20s by the time um, I started grad school. Okay, so that seems like a pretty overwhelming time. In my mind, your parents are getting a divorce at later in life, which is pretty surprising to hear. I think I usually think of people getting divorced so much like when kids are young, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. So your parents are getting a divorce and you decide to make a major career shift. So yes, and I actually got married at the same time. (laughs) So you're an overachiever to say the least. So what was that like? I mean, emotionally and everything, how did you, how did all that go for you? Well, I feel like it all, um, it all kind of lined up nicely. You know, I think it's hard whenever you're in a place where you're trying to kind of make a major life change. And, you know, even though, 
I feel like, you know, mid to late 20s is still kind of young for career shifts, but I really, I really encourage people, I want people to feel much more free to kind of be looking at career shifts at any point in their life, because why not pursue something that you think would make you happy? But yeah, I think it lined up well. My husband and I got married, we moved to Wisconsin, Wisconsin had a phenomenal grad school program. And so it, it, you know, it was far away from family. And so it all just kind of lined up nicely. So was the original plan to be a lawyer? Is that what you were in law school for? Yeah, I think I was in law school as in like the, I don't really know what I want to be doing, but this makes sense. I, I was I was always drawn to communication and service to people. And so at the time, not knowing anything about therapy, that, that made sense to me, why law would be a fit. And then therapy was just such a, such a better fit in those two categories um, that it, um, once I found it, it just made sense. So what was it about that first session that was so eye-opening and exciting to you? I think even though I, I've always thought of myself as someone who likes to kind of look inside and likes to process thoughts and feelings with friends. It, it was such a different feeling. It was like, wow, like here's this like really kind person whose whole purpose is to sit here and try to see me and just try to reflect what they're seeing in a really compassionate way. And I was like, this feels so good. Like it feels so good to have someone validate that this is a hard time validate, you know, my feelings of responsibility in it, challenge me in the parts where I'm not seeing myself, because it's really a relationship that's different than any other. Like no friend or family member can can come in in that role in that way. And so that's where I was like, this is incredible. And do you remember any specific tools or anything specific to, you know, you said you started going because your parents were going through a divorce. Was there anything specific that really helped you through that time that you got from therapy? That's, that's an interesting question. For me, what's always worked well when I'm the client is realizing like the piece that I haven't seen yet. So it's, it's not so much like a tool as in kind of like, you know, use this when this happens, but it's more like in session, getting that insight, like getting that kind of awareness into that piece I haven't seen. And that always melts the emotion more for me. Oh, I like Does that. that make sense? Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay. So I loved what you said about 20s, 30s being young and that that is a great time to make a career shift because I think that that's true anytime in life that you should always, if you find what makes you happy, pursue it. So I love that you brought that up. Tell me a little bit. I think one thing that I would find intimidating is the idea of going back to school. So tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about that decision. Were you nervous? And what does the schooling require? Yeah. So couples therapy programs are pretty varied. Um, and you can do a marriage and family program. You can do the licensed professional counselor program that I did. And then you can do social work programs, which will be more broad in terms of um how to help people like it can be more like in programs it can be more in you know community building but you can also be a therapist if you do that and i i felt like i had such a leg up coming in older like I, i'm sure there are other programs where it's an advantage to be older but therapy is such an advantage to be older like to not be 22 and right out of college was amazing um because you just know yourself so much better and um or i did i knew myself so much better earlier but um so the program that i went to uh is the university of wisconsin in oshkosh um and it was it was just amazing because they really um push you to look at parts of yourself you might not want to look at and that i can immediately see a difference in therapists that went to programs where they really pushed you and programs where it's just about kind of learning uh, different theories because um, clients are going to push you a lot. And so you need to sort of be put through, I called it like the emotional Navy SEALs. Like you have to be huh. put through the ringer because the clients are going to put you through a ringer and you have to know yourself really well to stay grounded in those moments. So you mentioned different theories and I know that when it comes to therapy, there are a lot of different types of therapy and different types of therapy that you can choose to practice. So how did you decide what method 
was right for you? And, and can you explain the type of therapy that you practice? Yeah, that is such, I'm so glad you asked me that question, Alec, because um, so with individual therapy, I think that most therapists would describe themselves as eclectic, where you see such a variety of clients with different issues and different ages, and there are so many different theories, and I think it's important to be educated in as many as you can, but, but ultimately you're using yourself. And so you kind of take all these different theories and then you filter them through who you are as a person. And then you connect to me, like the best work is when you connect relationally to the client, um, which just means like in a human way versus like the old Freudian, like sit on the couch and don't look at me and, you know, we'll be really removed. Um, but with couples therapy, it's a little different. So couples therapy is such a different animal than individual therapy that I think you really need to be grounded in a specific model. And you can draw on, you know, other theories and other research, but it's, I mean, going into a couples therapy session is like walking into the middle of a NASCAR race. So you have to like really know what you're doing. And so I use emotionally focused couples therapy. It's also called EFT for short. And it's founded by Dr. Sue Johnson. And um, I can tell you a little bit about it or not. I feel like I've been talking for a while now. So I need to hear your no, voice I, to like, I love tell me you where talking. I am. No, I love it. So <laughs> tell me, well, why were you drawn to, to couples therapy? Tell me about why you wanted to work with couples versus working one-on-one -on -one with people. Yeah, I really did not. I did not ever want to do couples really? because it always felt so intimidating to me. You know, individual therapy, like... It's, I'm not saying it's easy by any means, um, and certainly working with trauma will challenge any therapist you know, to, you know, to their limits, but you really have like one task in there. You know, you're helping one person feel heard and validated and challenged, but with couples you have two, and then they're also escalating between each other, so it... it it, it, it always just felt too hard. But I randomly stumbled into something called a live session. So what that is, is when a master therapist will have a couple who consents to this, where they will do a live counseling session, and they video feed it into another room where a group of therapists are watching. And so I just kind of randomly heard that this was happening. And I went and I saw this therapist, um, Lori Brubacher, doing EFT with a couple. And Allie, like, it blew my mind. Like, I was watching this and I was like, this is the future of therapy. Like, really? this is the most unreal thing I've ever seen. I've never seen something, someone be able to do something like this. What was it about so, it? Like, what? why oh was it so God. great? It, like... It's so validating, and yet it also creates change so quickly. And so usually, like, a lot of ways that change is created quickly is when a therapist comes in with kind of like a drill sergeant method, where they're like, here's everything that's wrong with you. Here's what you need to do differently. And this, like, was as empathetic and warm and validating as any model I've ever seen, but it was it was also like constantly pushing the change between the couple and it was just like incredible that's like the best way I can describe it I love that I love that you sound so like lit up and excited referring <laughs> back to it okay so tell me some misconceptions about couples therapy I think one misconception is that the therapist is going to be kind of removed and judgy like most clients that come in to me are like, I know you're going to have to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I'm like, that's like not at all how I practice. Like that's not at all how I work. Um, it's so important for the couple to feel as comfortable as possible. Um, the, you know, the alliance between them and me is the most important part of the therapy. Um, and that's not to say it goes perfectly. And that's not to say I don't make mistakes at times that I, you know, need to repair and clean up. But um, I th so I think one misconception is that it's like you're going to get judged. I think the second misconception is that you're going to find out a lot about the relationship that's way worse than you thought. Like I have a lot of people come in and they're like, oh, I'm scared that there's going to be stuff we don't even know about yet. And that that's rarely the case. Um, usually, like, you know what's wrong. It's just 
really hard to know how to correct it. So I know that one thing that held me back from going to therapy for a long time is I knew for a long time, and this wasn't couple therapy, this was me by myself mm-hmm. first, I was very depressed, I was very aware of it, and everyone was like, you should go to therapy, you should go see someone. The first thing that held me back was finding a therapist. Do you have mm-hmm. any advice for finding a therapist? Yeah, it's tricky. So I do think word of mouth is the best way, um, because then you kind of trust who who you're hearing it from. But for people who don't have that, I recommend either Googling, you know, therapist in your area and look at their websites and see kind of what speaks to you. And then there is a website called Psychology Today. um, And you can go search in your zip code and you can search by insurance and uh, gender and, you know, anything you want, like their areas of specialty. So psychology today is a good way to do it. But as a therapist, like it's when you have to write your blurb for psychology today, it sucks so bad. There's like, oh my God. I have read so many of them. And as a writer, I feel for every single one of those oh therapists because it. how do you make yourself sound different and appeal? Like I totally get it. kudos to every therapist who is on there and has written that blurb because I imagine that is very difficult there's no no way to sound good in that (laughs) all right but that is a great resource that's what I used and I loved being able to search by insurance and the second thing that held me back is I felt like why am I gonna pay to sit in a room and cry for I'm a crier so I was Mm -hmm. like why am I gonna sit in a room and cry for an hour and pay a lot of money to do it so what do you say to that well, first, I totally get it. Like when I think like there are times, you know, because I feel like mental health is cyclical that I'm like, oh, I really need to go see my own therapist again or we move and I need to find my own. And I'm like, am I like, am I really going to hear something new? Like, am I, really? I mean, of course, I go through the same thing. I don't know what, what you found, but for me, it's the uniqueness of the relationship. So like this is like I think of it as like the most like wonderfully indulgent thing I can do for myself where like someone is just going to focus on me for an hour and just focus in on trying to understand me and, you know, help me explore things in a way that I wouldn't have thought of. And I mean, I'm a therapist and I go see people who can still open up my mind in ways that I can't do just for myself. So um, that's what I would say to that. I don't know if you kind of found it helpful once you went or yeah I mean my biggest thing was finding the right person and the reason that I wanted to start going or that I should have started going and hesitated I was super sick um I've been sick for a long long time and to me it was one more doctor is I was already seeing so many doctors and going to so many appointments and was so sick that even though I saw the value to me it was finding the doctor and getting to the office and dealing with it, you know, all the like things that seem really daunting and end up not being a big deal. So I want to hear your perspective. What do you find holds most people back from going to therapy? I think what you outlined, I think it's the idea that they're not going to hear anything new. Um, So why, you know, why are you going to spend all that time and money? I think, um, and I can get into this a little bit later, like there are, there are kind of um, a few different ways that we fall into categories of how we process emotions, like how we kind of deal with other people and our own emotions. So I'm I'm more of an anxious attacher, meaning like I'm a pursuer. So like if I have a feeling, like I want to process that feeling, whether it's with a friend or my husband or whatever. But if you're a little built a little bit more avoidant, which would be more of kind of a withdrawer, then you don't even want to go near your own feelings. Like your whole life you've coped by just kind of pushing it aside and getting over it and moving on. So the so, so for those people, the idea of seeing a therapist is like torture because that's the very thing they don't want to do is to go into those feelings. Right. So what is your advice to those people? I would say find a therapist you feel really comfortable with and they will go at your own pace. No one is trying to drown you in the deep end of the pool. No one's trying to move you faster than you want to go. You know, a lot of therapeutic work is almost exposure therapy with feelings. Like how do we help you even sit with a feeling for a minute and then we can move out of that and we can 
you know, go to a lighter place, um, but it, they'll go at your own pace. I like that. All right. So let's get to your job specifically in couples therapy. What do mm-hmm. you find? I know, we, I know HIPAA. I know we can't talk about your actual patients as fun as that would be for everyone, I'm sure, to just air <laughs> everyone's dirty laundry. What do you find with couples therapy are some of the most common, I, you know, I hesitate to call them problems or issues. I don't know if that's not PC. You can correct me. But what are some of sure, the, sure. what are some of, I guess, the reasons most people come to see you? Most people come in saying communication, yeah. um, communication or trust. Those are those are the ways that they would kind of identify it. And what they'll say is, you know, the more pursuer partner will say, I just can't get them to hear me. I feel so alone. I tell them the same thing over and over and nothing changes. I don't even think they're capable of feeling these things. I don't even think they're capable of connecting with me in this way. The more withdrawn partner will say they're always upset, like their partner, like my partner's always upset. They're always mad at me. They can't get over this. They, you know, tell me over and over the same thing and I get it. And so really the way EFT works is to say neither one of you are bad. What's happening between you is a cycle and you can almost map it like it's the same argument that's going to happen every time and you're each going to do the same thing every time. So people might come in and say it's the dishes or it's sex or it's the in-laws or it's whatever. But what what's really happening underneath is they're saying we don't feel secure. Like we don't feel totally safe with each other. And so then we get into this dance where one pursues and one withdraws and they can never quite find each other. Mm, that's so interesting my husband and I have we went to couples therapy twice about a year ago when we were kind of in a not so great patch and I was the one who was like I want to go do this and he was he was all for it which mm-hmm. was great and I am definitely the one who is always upset and who it was always something and it was we were like going through this process of figuring out like well what is the actual issue and we literally talked about the dishes and it was like well (laughs) are the dishes really the problem so I love that that was your example and I'm curious is there do you find that there's usually um I know you you counsel all kinds of couples um do you find that it's at all gender specific in who tends to initiate couples therapy is it often female, male, and I know you work with same-sex couples as well. So I'm curious how that tends to play out. Surprisingly, I feel like it really falls down the middle with who initiates the therapy. I think that's interesting. I, I think I associate it with like the stereotypical, like the female insists, let's go and talks the male into it because I think that's what we always hear. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how it's split. Yeah. So to me, the pursuer initiates therapy. And so that's often female, but not always. Like there's certainly male pursuers. Um, And so, but a lot of times people come in where the pursuer is burnt out and then the withdrawer, which who more typically is male, but not always, the withdrawer will say, will panic. And that's kind of the first time they're realizing like this has gotten really bad. And even though the pursuers felt like things have been bad for years, um, so then they'll initiate because they don't want the relationship to end. Do you find that there's a time in life or in a relationship that couples are most likely to run into different issues? Like, is it newlyweds or first time parents or then empty nesters? When do most problems? Again, I feel like problems is such a judgy word and I don't want to use that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't I, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I think like. Yeah. I I mean, I think the couple would describe it as a problem, right? right? They would say like, this is so distressing to us. Like this sucks for us. Um, So I I don't think what you're saying is not compassionate at all. Like that's how they would say it. Um, (laughs) Okay. But yeah. So um, (laughs) I know you're pregnant. And so I I am. Oh gosh. Is is the answer first time parents? I like almost didn't put that in there. Go ahead. So so just to normalize, um, this so Gottman's research, John and Julie Gottman's research, um, would say that seventy percent of couples experience um, distress after their first baby comes. Yay! Uh, and so, however, like that, you know, that is something that is, I hope, is more validating than it is like a dooming prediction mm-hmm. because 
you know, when you ha- when your baby comes, like every resource you have gets dropped down to zero and you're trying to keep something alive. Like, why wouldn't that be the most stressed a couple gets? Yeah. But of course, it's also, you know, brings in so many more opportunities to get to know each other on deeper levels and bond in more vulnerable ways. And like you're seeing each other in really raw moments where, you know, you just those portals might not open up with a couple um, otherwise. So I, I'd say that is a more validating. Um, but the, the other statistic, interestingly, is that, and I hope this is changing, but that on average, people wait to come into couples therapy six years <gasps> after stress begins in wow. a relationship. I know. Um, that's even after an affair. It's six years after that most couples... Wow. see therapists, even though, of course, all couples therapists see clients who are coming in fresh off of an affair or some sort of rupture. But Do couples going through that, this is like such a nosy question, but for m- couples who've been through affairs, do you find that they are more likely to work it out and rebuild their trust and be able to move on? Or is that like usually a pretty bad sign? So interesting. And I, wait, and I should say, this is me being nosy. This is not something that is personal to me. This is just because you mentioned it in my mind. I'm like, oh, damn, like that's a deal breaker for me. That would be a deal breaker. So I'm wondering how many people like are mature enough or secure enough to be able to come back from that. What What is really interesting is and I hope I'm quoting this right, um, but I, it's about 73 percent of couples that stay together really? through an affair. Yeah. And and what a lot of people struggle with is that they will say, like, I always thought I would leave my partner if they had an affair. And I feel so foolish for staying. Um, But a lot of, you know, it's amazing. Like, it can really open up like a level of vulnerability in their partner they had never seen before. They can, in, in some ways, feel more connected to their partner than they ever have, of course, also feel more betrayed by their partner than they ever had. But it does it does op- can open up a lot of bonding. Um, wow. Not that I recommend it, but yeah. don't try this. Don't try that. No, if you're not no. feeling close to Do each other, this, what is the reason that you find that most people have affairs or infidelity? You know, I mean, there's so much research on this, and I think you know my response will be more kind of anecdotal, but. Um, and there's lots of different categories. I mean, of course, there are people who are more kind of in an addictive mind frame, and that's mm. a different way to have an affair. There are people who really, like, there's not another way they know how to end their relationship, and so an affair is a way to do it. Um, but I think that oftentimes what happens is there's some degree of distance. It doesn't have to be a ton, and that person is coping with their emotions by not turning towards their partner and instead someone comes along that makes them feel good and is exciting and they go towards that feeling and then it's not until later that they realize oh crap (laughs) what did I do what did I do and you know I think for anyone listening who might be considering having an affair, what I, I think what I would want people to hear is like, if you're legit leaving your relationship, like if there is no hope in your mind for this relationship, that's one thing. But if there still is, like if you were like, you know, I do still want this relationship to work. I, you know, I just wish my partner would do X, Y, or Z, you know, it, you will save yourself so much emotional pain and financial pain. If you, can go to see a therapist now or talk to your partner because it is carnage. Like once the affair comes out, it's carnage. Yeah. Do you, do you find a big difference in the type? I know um, that you work with lots of different couples. Do you find a big difference in the types of issues that straight couples deal with versus same sex couples? No, really? It's mostly the communication and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as the cycle, you know, as that same kind of argument cycle that happens when it's tough to reach each other. And um, no, I mean, I really don't. I think I think that they're quite similar. And you mentioned the six year statistic, which is pretty staggering. So when is the right time to seek out a couples therapist? That's a good question. I think the right time to seek out a couples therapist is when you feel frustrated with your partner, but you still have fondness and admiration for them. Okay. 
And I have to like, imagine. That's ideal. That's right. ideal. Like right. a lot of people come in to me when they do not have fondness and admiration for their partner any longer. But and you can still, you know, see what can be done there and try to make it work. But if you can come in when like high frustration, but you still like and respect this person, like that's the sweet spot. And I have to imagine that what holds many couples back or individuals even is that one part, like we talked about this a little bit, is that one part wants to go to couples therapy and either thinks, assumes the other will say no mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the other does say no. So how do you how do you get both people in your office, basically? I mean, because I, I mean, I work with individuals for a long time and still see some individuals and I hear that a lot. You know, I don't think my partner will. And one is I would say do try to ask because a lot of people are surprised that their partner will be up for it. And if their partner isn't, then to me, like, I would sit them down and say, look, I'm more distressed than you realize. And I am scared that I'm going to lose this, you know, really important thing to me, which is our relationship. And this is the only way I know how to do this right now. And if that can come from like a more vulnerable, like kind of place of gravity, I would really hope that most partners can hear and respond to that. And how do you know, from your perspective, how do you know if a relationship is salvageable? And do you ever say to a couple, like, you know what, I think you two aren't compatible anymore and parting ways may be best? You know, EFT comes in with a very optimistic view that if the partners can start to hear each other, um, anything is possible. And actually distress is not necessarily a predictor of if couples therapy works or not. Um, The biggest predictor of if couples therapy works is the level of motivation between um, the clients. But yeah, so no, of course, I never, I would never would sit a couple down and be like, this, this really sounds (laughs) brutal. I think you should divorce. Sign here. Uh, (laughs) Sign here. No, I, there are a couple times where I have felt like, wow, I am not helping them at all. And then I'll refer to someone with more experience than I have. Um, and so like, sometimes I just think maybe I'm not the right fit and they just need to try a different fit or a different model. Um, so I will refer out, um, occasionally, but, but no, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't weigh in if they should be together or not. Now it's time to pause for a word from our sponsor. Raise your hand if you're training for a big fall race. And now raise your other hand if it's a half marathon, a marathon, or even an ultra. All right, now that you have both hands in the air, let me tell you why you need a pair of Aftershocks wireless headphones. First, because they're wireless and running without pesky cords bouncing around is the best way to run. Second, because they're super lightweight and comfortable. And third, because if you're going to be running for two, three, four, five hours at a time, you need headphones that will outlast your legs. A single charge keeps your Aftershocks headphones running for six full hours. So whether you like rocking out to the Greatest Showman soundtrack, you prefer listening to your favorite podcast on the run, or you use your long runs as a time to phone home, your headphones won't shut down before your body does. So I want you wearing these headphones. I love them and I know you will too. So go to ontherun.aftershocks.com for $30 off your wireless headphone purchase. Now let's get back to the show. I know this is probably not, again, the proper term, but in terms of taking sides kind of thing, is it hard when it seems like maybe one person is right and the other is wrong again these are very broad terms sure, I know. sure but is it hard not to side with one side of a couple sometimes so there are certain models of couples therapy like terrence real um he does a model of couples therapy um from i think it's called the relational life institute and he will weigh in and he talks a lot about why that is and I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily bad. It's just that's his model. You know, the way EFT works is to not is to see each partner as equally kind of caught in this dance, right? That that neither one is kind of right or wrong. That's the therapy answer. <laughs> the human answer is it's not about right or wrong, it's about self-awareness. And so if one person let's say is drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels every night and the other person is doing everything I would want them to do to try to 
tell their partner how it makes them feel and the other one just can't see it. Like there does come a point where there might be a difference in self-awareness and that it, I will maybe have an individual session with that person and say, look, like, you know, I didn't, I never want them to feel cited against in the couples therapy. Um, but it does happen. Um, yeah. The, well, when my husband and I went, the first, uh, we did two sessions with this one guy and the first time we both left and I was almost uncomfortable because I so strongly felt the therapist siding with me. Mm. And even though, like, I think I assumed I would have loved that. Like, look at mm-hmm. me, I'm right. But instead I was just like, I can tell this is just going to push Brian further away and this is not going to help. Of course, the next session, I, he favored Brian and I was the bad guy. And I was like, this is bullshit. We're not going back. <laughs> but we also, he wasn't a fit for us. I will say that. Yeah. Like, I'm sure he's great for lots of people. He wasn't a fit for us. Um, fortunately, we ended up going to two sessions. And then I don't know why we hit like a major turning point, which was great. Um, but yeah, it was interesting that like Brian felt so attacked after the first session. And after the second one, the second one ended with him saying to me, like, this isn't couples therapy. You need to be coming in by yourself. And I was like, oh, damn. And see that, oh man, like it kills me as a couples therapist to hear that because I'm like, oh, like that's not how, you know, I don't think that that's safe for the clients, but you're so right. And I love that you said that because I think some people come into couples therapy really wanting the validation of being right, but, but like, they don't, they love their partner and they want this process to work and they don't want their partner to feel, you know, maligned in some way or, you know, put in like the bad kid corner at all. Um, and it's not, you can feel it. Like it's not, it's not yeah. healthy therapy. No, we, we, like I said, what just wasn't a fit for us, but it was mm-hmm. kind of nice. Like we went out to dinner after and we like, joked about it and we we're like oh this guy <laughs> haha and like suddenly we were bonding over our dislike for him so the poor guy we spent the night bashing him which That's you know fine. is totally unfair but it brought us together which ultimately isn't that the goal so it worked I'm, I'm happy you got something from that <laughs> yeah so is it also is it hard not to get attached because I know I have one conversation with someone and I'm like be my best friend I love you do you ever are you allowed to interact with patients outside of your office walls So that's a two-parter. One, I get very attached to my clients. Like I'm like, as soon as I meet you, like I love you and I want to like support your marriage and like, I'm like so in it. And so I like, I have kind of like an intense cheerleader vibe when it comes to like people's relationships. Um, But no, I do not interact with clients outside of session. So that's, you know, a part, part of it is like, I do feel that attached and abs- I adore my clients. Like I think they're the best people in the world. And then they stay in that role and then I have my own separate life. Oh, all right. So even if it's like years down the road and they move, don't you ever just want to be like, how are you guys doing? But I'm can't. dying to do it. I totally want to do that, but I cannot do it because there are ethical boundaries. <laughs> All right. That's fair. And you know what? I respect you for respecting the boundaries. So, <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit before we move on to the listener Q&A, which will be super fun. I want to know about your relationship. You are married. You and yes. your husband are both runners. So yes. how did you two meet? Oh, we met on match.com. Love it. And can I tell you an extra piece of that? Yes, please so do. So this is this is how much of a pursuer I am. Like I'm a dyed in the wool pursuer. So I I went on match.com, looked at people's pictures, saw Matt's picture, and I was like, that's the one I want. And so I signed up just to talk to him. <gasps> oh, you weren't I on it post- yet. Amazing. No. I signed up and at the time I, you know, you're like a broke 25 year old and I had no money and it was like 20 or $30 to sign up. And I was like, oh damn, like, am I going to pay 20 or $30? But I couldn't stop thinking about him. So I signed up. I did not post a picture. Like I did not want other people contacting me. I just emailed him and then we went on a date and we have been together since then. Wow. When did you tell him that story? When were you like, hey, you were the one. <laughs> I had a bolt, like a target on your back. I don't even remember, but hopefully not the first date. <laughs> well, hey, whatever. It worked out. It worked out. And tell me about being a runner. When did you start running? So Matt has always run um, 
And I never, I never ran. So I danced ballet growing up, but Yay. I never did. <laughs> I know I love ballet. Um, I never did any other sports, never did any team sports, nothing. And so I would like, you know, like twice a year go for a jog and be like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. But um, it was actually for mental health purposes. So when I, when I was in my last year in grad school, Matt and I had to live um, pretty long distance for a whole year. So I was in Wisconsin and he was in Virginia and um, and the dogs lived with him. So like not only did I lose my husband, but I lost the dogs. And I my system definitely runs towards anxiety. Like I'm you know, I don't I can't even drink caffeine. Like my heart is like a hummingbird just as it is. But it was the first time I had experienced depression. And I was like, oh, damn, like I got to do something with this. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to train for a half marathon because um, I know how important exercise is for mental health. And that also kind of breaks my heart with your story, Allie, like just <laughs> with the, the Crohn's and like not being able to exercise at yeah. like the time. Oh, <laughs> like that's such a one two punch. Big time. Oh, but um, yeah. So I trained for a half marathon and um, I loved the training and I loved that I actually competed in something and got a medal, which is the first time that ever happened to me. And uh, I'm a little bit addicted to the validation of the medal. I love that. And and do you and Matt run together? <laughs> we do. So we've run two marathons. Um, we just finished our second. And um, so during the week, we run separate. And then on we'll do a Sunday long run together. Oh, that's so nice. All right. So I have to assume you're, you know, you're a therapist. He works in HR, which means he's people oriented. You must have a perfect fight free, problem free (laughs) relationship, right? Of course. I'm amazing. (laughs) I never do anything wrong. Um, So in many ways, like I I just lucked out hardcore with Matt. Like I met Matt before I was a therapist. You know, we got married before I was a therapist. And like to like Matt is like to me like a dreamboat. And so I'm very, very fortunate with who I married. And in many ways, I feel like he helped me learn what a healthy, mature relationship looks like. We're both conflict avoidant. So that works for us. (laughs) But Conflict is not a bad thing. Like conflict's not a bad thing for couples, um, as long as you're respectful to each other and don't use a lot of contempt or criticism. Like conflict is fine. But um, I will say that, yeah, the hard parts is, and what I love about EFT is that you can know everything. Like you can know exactly how you're supposed to phrase something. You can know just what to do. But when those emotions come online you are not using those skills, right? <laughs> You're just feeling something. So no, it's not perfect, but I will say that we work very hard at being respectful to each other. That's awesome. All right, the last thing that I'll ask before we move on to the Q&A, tell me your take on the piece of advice everyone gives, which is don't go to bed angry. Do you believe that or not so much? Oh, I did not expect that question. Um, I think that... It is very difficult without help to do something different when you're angry. So the idea that you will all of a sudden not become angry um, means that for the pursuer, like they're going to be trying to talk it out and the withdrawer is going to be hitting max load within about anecdotally 15 minutes. And so I don't know how you would somehow get out of that cycle just because you want to. But if the couple both has the idea, like we really care about resolving conflict is, you know, within the same day, like I think that's an awesome goal. I just think it's, you know, it's hard to do when the emotions yeah. are online. So if if it works for you, get the good night's sleep and work it out yeah. in the morning. Or do, and what's do so you. Fa- <laughs> what's so fascinating to me is that for a lot of withdrawers, like sleep is how they cope with that bad feeling. Yeah, that's my like, husband. They're just, Big oh, time. it's, they're just, they could just go to bed. I, I'm staring no. at the ceiling. No. Like my heart's just racing the whole night and they're just like, their system has to shut down. No. And I'm waking you up and I'm saying, Hey, <laughs> and then I'm waking up in the morning and I'm still pissed. Yeah. So Cause, be careful. Cause you haven't <laughs> processed your emotions. They're yeah. still there. 
Um, is it normal to have dreams where I'm mad at my husband and then be mad at him in real life? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I have I have this recurring dream that Matt's cheated on me yeah. and I wake up in like a full livid rage. It's okay. Horrible. All right. I'm glad I just needed that normalized because that happens, <laughs> especially now that I'm pregnant. Like my dreams are, <gasps> they're like full length feature films, Whoa. horror movies. They're crazy. And I never in our relationship have I not trusted, like trust has never mm-hmm. been an issue. Brian is like the most loyal human on the planet. Like cheating, none of that has ever, n- never been a concern. And yet in my dreams, Brian's having affairs all the time. And I'm yeah. so mad about it in real life. I'm right there with you. All right. So that makes me <laughs> feel better. too. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, so I put a call out on Instagram saying, hey, we're having a couples therapist on the show. The minute that I said all questions will be anonymous, my inbox just about blew up. So Whoa, people great. have questions, which is awesome. Before we get into them, and I'm going to read them exactly as they were sent. So we're going into this with, you know, somewhat limited information for most of these. But can you just kind of put a disclaimer on these? Like, what should people sure. know about the answers you're giving to these short questions? Sure. Um I am answering these in a general way. Um, I am not your therapist, unfortunately. I'm sure I would love to be each one of your therapists. So this is general information for anyone experiencing distress, either individual or with a couple. You should go see a therapist in your state who is qualified um, and licensed. Perfect. There's my disclaimer. All right. We covered all our bases. And I will be giving no advice because I am not qualified in anything. So (laughs) I'm just going to read the questions. And the first one's a really good one. Okay. How how often do healthy couples, that's in quotes, how often do healthy couples actually have sex? Oh, um, I think that it really depends on the couple, but healthy couples have sex, I think, with an open dialogue, which is like a weird way to answer this question. But like each person is aware of like what their partner's needs are and they're trying to strike a balance. But, you know, I mean, it could be I mean, if you have little kids, like you might have low amount of frequency with sex or you might have gangbuster high amount of frequency. But um <laughs> But I don't think that there's just like one specific statistic for healthy couples. So I'm going to add a follow up for this person who is asking, which is not me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pregnant, so I feel like that's a good <laughs> indicator that I'm doing fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> if, if you are unsatisfied with your sex life, if you feel you're not having enough, do you have any advice for that person about how to create that dialogue in a way, you know, I think it's hard to talk about that with your partner of like, hey, we're not having enough sex. How do you bring that up without making it not weird, but like that's not a turn on talking about sex isn't sexy. <laughs> it is super hard. It is super hard. And I would say that um, if you can, first of all, try to have the conversation at a calm time outside the bedroom not right before or right after you've attempted to have sex when you're frustrated that it didn't work. Um, so separate time, separate place. And I would, if, if you can have that conversation more from the standpoint of connection and help your partner understand like what that connection means to them, that's going to be more helpful than like, why aren't you putting out for me. And I don't know how many sex questions there are, but that's for it. any, any, okay. So for any listener, You should check out Vanessa Marin, M-A-R-I-N. She is a sex therapist and has amazing online courses that you can take with your partner. And they are so fantastic. And um, so for anyone who's having a real disconnect with sex with their partner, I think couples therapy is great. And Vanessa Marin seems to know what's up in this department. Awesome. All right. Next question. How do you recommend balancing when one partner is generally much more emotional than the other? I love this question because all the couples who come into me, they're like, I'm emotional and my partner's not. And what I say is you're both emotional. You're both equally emotional. You just do a different thing with your feelings. So a pursuer is going to emote and they're going to look emotional and they're going to sound emotional. 
and a withdrawer has all those feelings happening, but how they deal with them is to stuff it down and try to make it smaller inside themselves. And so one is not better than the other by any means. This is just like how people cope with their feelings. So I would just say, realize that your partner is way more sensitive than they look. And if you're coming in with a lot of complaint or criticism, they are actually hearing that and responding to it, but they respond by shutting down. Hmm. All right. This one is kind of similar in terms of the imbalance. How do you get on the same page when one person is not so good at communication and providing important details and information, and then the other person feels they're always pulling teeth to get details and communication? Hmm. That sounds like a trust piece to me. I would guess, um, not knowing this person, um, I think that what often happens, the cycle can kick up where the person being asked does not understand, or maybe if if they don't understand why the questions are being asked, it sounds like they might be kind of feeling like, why are you suspicious of me? Or like, why are, like, why isn't this data enough for you? And so they're getting defensive, which is, you know, what makes it difficult. So one is I would say, does your partner know why you're asking? Like, are you really coming in clearly and saying, hey, I'm feeling kind of insecure. Is it okay if I ask some questions about this? Because, like, I'm wanting to kind of understand more of this. Or are you coming in and being like, why are you talking to her? <laughs> and then, like, they're just not responding because, like, their system's shutting down. Um, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it's like the State Farm commercial for <laughs> with Jake from State Farm. Right. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> khakis <laughs> exactly <laughs> so one is does your partner know why you're asking and two like um or, or like if it's not a trust piece if you're just saying like my partner is like very limited in how they talk about things in a calm slow way i might ask them like what is it like for you when i'm asking you these questions because i don't know what is it like for them it's great advice All right, next question. I'm a runner and overall a healthy person, but my husband is the opposite. He's overweight, eats pretty bad, and doesn't work out. How can I encourage him to take care of himself without sounding like his mother, which is what he says a lot of the time? Aw, I'm sorry. And I should say, we got three different versions of this same question from three different people, so I'm guessing it's a pretty common one. So the way that EFT helps couples talk to each other is through the lens of attachment, which means how important your partner is to you. So what EFT knows is that all points of distress are because your partner's important to you. If they weren't important to you, you don't care if he's eating pizza and a box of donuts and watching nine movies in a row. You don't. You might like feel slightly bad for that person, but you don't care. You only care because they mean a lot to you. So if you can go in with that as the conversation starter, that's going to sound a little different. Like you are incredibly important to me. And it scares me when I feel like you're not taking care of yourself or being healthy and I feel helpless and I don't know what else to do. Like that message is not like a mom, right? So the focus is on the well-being, not the physical, not like hey, you don't look good. I can't imagine that coming across in a motivating way, but more on the, I want you to live forever because I love you kind of way. Yeah, like I care about you. That's why this is distressing to me. Cool. Uh, Yeah. All right. Can men and women have close friendships that are strictly platonic? What's a wife to do when her husband's two best friends are women? I, you know... Couples handle this so differently, um, and it certainly helps if the couple's on the same page with it. Um, but if not, then I think, again, it's about, like, can you have a conversation with your partner about, like, what's the distress point? Like, is it that she's worried or he's worried that they um, are sharing more with their friend than they are with her or him like what's the distress point about it like do you are you worried that they're attracted to them like what's the pain point and then so can you have a conversation around that with some more clarity and then if if it's really a huge problem I think just trying to talk that out and saying like this 
is there a way that I can get some, like, there's some way that I can have some reassurance around this. Um, but I'd be curious how those dialogues are going. That might be one for a couple's therapist. All right. Usually tough ones to have just between the couple. So set up a session. We'll have all your info at the end. We'll, yeah. you'll get, you'll start getting some state. calls. <laughs> or that, or that. Um, okay, we'll do a couple more. Please tell me how to survive with two working parents and two kids under two. I love my husband a lot, but sometimes getting out the door in the morning includes some screaming and hostility. Any advice is much appreciated. Oh, my response to you is that you are a hero <laughs> and your partner is a hero because you are living in the most resource deprived situation, you know, that couples go through. Right. So the fact that you're not murdering each other, I think you should feel really good about yourself. And usually couples in those situations have just no time or resources for the things they need to do that connect them. You know, like go for bike rides or go for runs. Like it becomes a relay where you're just passing the kids off, you know, and you have very little connection time. So as much as humanly possible, and I know it's really tough with exhaustion and childcare and all of that, try to really try to carve out at least once or once a week or every two weeks time. That's just the two of you to do some, some bonding the way you used to when you dated. All right, let's do one more and then we'll sprint to the finish. Okay. All right. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years and have been unsuccessful. I feel flat as a pancake most days and all my energy seems to be sucked up by sadness. I feel like such a shit wife. Not my words there. I feel like such a shit wife and yet my husband ensures me he's okay and everything is fine. Am I naive to believe him? How do I get him to open up about how he's feeling? Is it possible that this whole process is just affecting him way less than it's affecting me? Oh, my heart breaks yeah. for her. Um, so I'm going to give kind of a longer answer. Um, hopefully that's okay. Yeah. So um, I did, I worked a lot um, with infertility clients and I still do. And infertility is a trauma and it's something where, you know, any, any chronic illness is a trauma and infertility is a unique trauma. And so first I just want to recognize that like, you're going through something incredibly difficult and it makes sense that you feel flat as a pancake. And it, if you're not seeing a therapist, I'd really recommend it just for support and having someone who you don't have to go to their baby shower and you don't have to, you know, see their Christmas card with kids on it. Like having a therapist um, who gets infertility and specializes in fertility is, um, I think a good call in terms of the, like, does my husband feel the same emotions? Usually with couples experiencing infertility, this kind of interesting tilt happens where the partner, and of course it could be an sex partner is really just trying to be there for emotional support. They're watching their partner go through hell and they, they can't take on physical aspects of it. Um, and so, and not, and maybe sometimes even the emotional, if the infertility is residing more with um, the, fee, the fee partner who's trying to conceive. So it's probably not that they, that they are unaffected, but they see themselves as the role of upper, like the emotional upper, like you're feeling so down. My role is to bring in the positivity and they don't realize that it would actually mean a lot to their partner if they could just connect through the painful stuff and connect through their vulnerable emotions. But they see themselves as like, if we both go to that place, oh my God, we're just all going to sink, you know? So I don't know if this is something that you guys could talk out alone or it might need a therapist, but helping him understand that the thing you might need is to understand some of his painful emotions around it. So I hope that's helpful. That's a great answer. And sending lots of love from from this side of the microphone because that's yes. really, really tough stuff. Ugh, so infertility sucks. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, if you're up for it, we'll sprint to the finish. Yes. I, I have never negative split, but maybe this will be my No, no, no. Time. Listen, listen. My motto is positive splits for positive people. Yeah. So just embrace it. All right. Let's sprint to the finish. What would your last meal on earth be? 
I love food so much um, <laughs> that it's hard to answer. But really, really amazing bread with really amazing salted butter yes. would be my last oh, meal. We're the same. Favorite movie? <laughs> My favorite, I mean, there's so many, but my favorite movie as a therapist is Lars and the Real Girl with Ryan Gosling. It's an amazing, amazing movie about mental health. Favorite TV show? Parks and Rec. Biggest pet peeve? When I'm walking my dogs in a place where dogs need to be leashed and someone's dog that's not on a leash comes bounding up and gets in my dog's face. And they say, it's okay, they're friendly. And I'm like, great, but my dog might not be friendly, and now I can't control your dog. It's the meanest that I ever get. (laughs) Greatest fear? Something happening to a loved one. Where did you have your first real kiss? Summer camp, right before high school. What is the last thing you and your husband fought about? Me spending money on my career. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) I think this is where like you can see like the convergence of like feelings and cycles where like I already come into those conversations feeling insecure and defensive. And so he like blink funny and then I'm like, what's wrong? Are you mad? Are you upset with this? What's wrong? (laughs) Where you can hear that pursuer energy. And then so that like it's, it's one of those tough moments where like I have a lot of triggers around it. And so he basically has to like talk me through a lot of his feelings for me to like come come down from that stuff I really like the phrase pursuer energy and I'm gonna start using that the next time my husband and I are bickering Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be like this is my pursuer energy coming out and I feel like that'll just (laughs) validate anything I say so and then I'll direct him to you so this is gonna be your problem (laughs) not mine perfect (laughs) what job would you be terrible at Oh my God, I'd be terrible at so many jobs, but probably truck driver, like long haul truck driver. I, I don't like driving. It would be a nightmare. Are you usually early or late? Early to everything. Yes. When people come to you for help, what do they usually want? (laughs) Um, people usually want to just talk to me about what they're feeling, whether it's friends or clients. So is that frustrating? Like, are your friends ever like, hey, can I ask you a couple quick questions? And then like, when that's what you do for a living, do you want to just like Venmo them after? No, I love talking to people about what they feel. I like I'm the person who on an airplane prays that someone asks me what I do and then wants to talk to me about their feelings. That's how much I love doing this. I love it. What is something that you think everyone should do at least once in their lives? Hmm. I think that everyone should take a risk for something that they feel passionate about once in their lives, at least. I like that answer. If you could go for a run with anyone, who would it be? Dina Castor. What's something you've been meaning to try but haven't gotten around to? It's I really like to cook and bake, so probably something something in that realm. But I can't think of anything specific. But that's usually where like all my my like New Year's resolutions are and stuff like that. <laughs> what website do you visit most often? Pinterest. What's probably. your favorite smell? Oh, the smell of the air in Lafayette, California. Like there's just nothing like it. It's the best smelling air in the whole world. What is the best compliment you've ever received? When my husband tells me that he thinks I'm intelligent. That's that's my favorite compliment. It doesn't happen that often. But But he's thinking it all the time. We don't know. But but it really, like, I'm a words of affirmation girl. I don't know if you know the love languages. I love the love languages. Love them. I want to be like, I want someone to just rain words of affirmation on me. Oh, see, I'm all five love languages. I want all of the things all of the time. Why not? Except gifts. I don't need gifts. That one is Yeah, I'm not yeah, I'm not no. big on that either, but uh okay, they say everyone has a book in them. What would yours be about? Oh, I hope I have more than one book in me, but I I really want to translate like so Sue Johnson has written an amazing book for people who aren't therapists called Hold Me Tight. And it really explains EFT in a beautiful way. Um, and I would want to write um, something similar that's probably like even more um, like I, I'm a really big fan of layperson language. And so 
that that's definitely a book that I want to write. What is something you will never do again? Hopefully date. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer. Who was your childhood crush? I'm sorry. Who was your childhood celebrity crush? Um, I had a few, uh, Michael Jackson was up there for a while. Oh. Um, and then probably like Brad Pitt, as I got older, I thought he was pretty dreamy. Not now, not, not no crush now, but as a kid, <laughs> what celebrity now would you love to be stuck in an elevator with? Hmm. Probably Michelle Obama, who I don't know if celebrity is the right way to, to uh, describe yeah. that. But. Superhero. What was the best day of your life? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't think I don't think I my mind actually thinks that way. I think that I'm much more like I don't know. Like any good day makes me really happy. Oh, that's nice. If you could make one. But, oh, oh, can I? Oh, yeah. Can I revise that though? Yep. So my my sister had a baby last year, and being able to go and stay with her for a little bit like those are some of the best days of my life that was precious to me if you could make one rule that everyone had to follow what rule would you make do not speak to someone in a way you do not want to be spoken to Ooh, good one do you have a favorite charity or cause that you like to support oh yeah um I worked with the homeless population for a while and that's that's a cause that I feel passionate about and um I think any any charity that works with children who've been abused, anything like that, I think like those therapists are doing the hardest work in the entire world and I love that they do that work so that people can have a place like that. What one word do you want to be remembered by? Loving. All right, tell me five things that you love about yourself. My positivity. Uh, my optimism, which might be kind of similar, but I'll allow I'm welcome it. to. Um, thank you. Thank you, Judge Alley. <laughs> I would say compassion, um, curiosity, and um, action-oriented. Love that. All right. Before I let you go, give everyone listening a reason to run today. Single best thing you can do for your mental health. Love it. This has been so much fun. I can't believe we've already been talking for an hour because it went by so fast and I could keep you here forever. So thank you. Thank you for doing this and giving me so much of your time and sharing so much amazing stuff. Oh, thank you, Allie. I love what you do. Like, seriously, your podcast kind of helps me be a therapist because it like I listen to it on my way home from work and it just helps me like get into such a good mind frame from a tough day. And so I love what you do. So appreciative of it. Oh, that makes me so happy. Well, keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. And for everyone listening, tell them where they can find you. Sure. So my website is Wesley Ann with an E little dot com. Um, and if you are a therapist, you can check out my website, becomingatherapist.org, where I talk all about um, how to become a couples therapist and all the stuff I learn along the way. Yay. You're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will definitely talk again soon. Thanks, Allie. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alley on the Run show. Now, who wants to go to therapy with me? Remember, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review for the show on the listening app of your choice. And if you want more from me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Allie on the Run 1 or on the Allie on the Run Facebook page. Finally, let's give a little more love to this episode's sponsor, Aftershocks. Head to ontherun.aftershocks.com for $30 off your wireless headphone purchase. Now go share your feelings, hug a loved one, and become an expert communicator. And thanks for joining me on the run.